Welcome to the Leader Think Podcast, where we discuss personal growth and concepts for improving organizational culture. This is your host, Philip Grison. As you increase your wisdom, I hope you enlighten others on your path towards greatness. If you want to go further, head over to leaderthink.com. Hello, everyone. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Barry Borgerson. Barry graduated from the University of California, Berkeley with a PhD in computer science, but he also has a minor in management of human resources. And Barry has developed a comprehensive theory to help understand and manage our hidden mental mechanisms and those that can create involuntary habits that may not be serving us so well. Um, he's a longtime expert, a transformation coach, and he uses mind-level transformation to help people achieve repeated business success. Um, one of the things that, that I love about Barry and really relate to is his two-selves theory, and so I'm sure we're going to dive into that. But before we do, Barry, is there anything else you would like to tell our audience about who you are and, and what you do? Uh, sure, I say a few words. Uh I, my degree my degree is in computer science, and I, I was in the computer field for a long time, first technical work, then technical management, and then general management. So I ran large organizations. And along the way, as I was running these organizations, I noticed some people couldn't change some of their bad habits. And even more importantly, I took over a business that was failing, and I showed them a direction that, that we could save the business they agreed, and they couldn't change anything. And so there was this problem with culture. And, and as I was trying to understand it, and I kept pushing very hard and eventually did change the culture, but I knew it was brute force. It was There had to be a better way. So that started me on a long-term search for what goes on in the mind that causes people not to be able to make changes when they know it's in their best interest. And, and uh, then I actually retired early from a very lucrative uh, executive career to pursue this. And I've been, you know, pursuing this for research on this and theory building and practice with it and, you know, using it for a long time now. So uh, it, it started, uh, you know, I'm one of the few people in the coaching business that's actually been an executive for coaching executives uh, and, you know, high level leaders. So uh, that's what got me here. People often wonder, how did I get from the computer field into, you know, you know, working on, on behaviors and cultures. And that's, that's my path. You know, I, I can totally relate to the, the culture change efforts. And uh, with my company, we've been doing culture change work with, for uh, about 21 years now. And it, it, it's that it's the uh, emotional components that people often struggle with when, when it comes to uh, you uncover a need for some new equipment, then people just whip out the credit card and buy it. <laughs> but when you have people that um, are not leading well or not reinforcing behaviors well, a lot of that starts inside themselves, right? Yes, and, yes. and that emotional element, that, that's the struggle. So totally relate to it. Okay, so um, it really, Barry, the, the thing that turned me on to you is the two selves theory. And I think that I'm, um, you know, looking around the world, a lot of people communicate this in different ways. Um, and I'd love to hear your own unique way. Um, for the, my listeners, a lot of times I talk about how we have these limbic systems that have this more subconscious 
type of automatic thinking. A lot of it's inherently negative. And then we can have more purposeful, contemplative thinking from our prefrontal cortex. And so sometimes I'll communicate it that we've we've got a dog brain and we have a monk brain inside of us. <laughs> so could you talk in, in your own words about this two selves theory and, and how you communicate those those two selves to your clients? Yes, thank you. Well, uh, I start out like you. I talk about we have we operate in two modes. And, you know, you, you articulate it in a different way at the brain level, but we work in general, we work in two modes. One that requires us to think and process stories and, you know, thought processes. And the other one is automatic, involuntary. And so I say, if we, if we operate in these two distinct modes, I just say we act as if it's convenient to think about, we have two selves. We have this automatic self and we have this thinking self. And sometimes they cooperate, and sometimes they fight each other. <laughs> and and uh, and so one of the things we want to do is our, our intentions come from our thinking self. So when I talk about you know the thinking mode, I talk about the thinking self and the automatic mode, the auto self. It's just a name for these two these two modes. Hence the two selves theory. We have two different selves. And I I work primarily with uh, the auto self, but I don't call it. The auto self theory, because we're very, very good at what we do with our thinking self. I mean, we know how to solve very, very unique, complex problems. And so we certainly don't want to get rid of that. We're not replacing that. Everything we do well, we want to keep doing well. But we also have this automatic part, the other self, the auto, the auto self. And in that case, we have to, uh, we have to get more methodical about it. I mean, I mean, a good way to a good way to in the business world, a good way to get a look at that is the book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution. And, and you know, that book was written by Klaus Schwab, head of the World Economic Forum, not too long ago. And he talks in there about all of the technologies that are coming in what he calls the fourth industrial revolution. And and so he talks about the, the technologies, but he also talks about the ramifications of those technologies and how unprepared business leaders are to manage the ramifications. And these ramifications that he talks about, and I'll give you some examples, non-disruptive thinking, you know, dealing with the underlying social models, institutional framework, you know, uh, conceptual and operating models, the, the need to work with greater speed and agility. So all those things that he talks about that we're currently lacking are all in automatic mode, aren't they? They're all things that we, that we can't just think our way through. And, and so indirectly, he's saying our thinking mode is so effective that we're, it's so powerful that we're building these amazing technologies and they're having unintended consequences that we haven't yet learned to manage effectively. And that's why companies with long histories of success keep failing. You're so right. You're so right. Um, uh, you know, Barry, mm -hmm. the, the way I'll say it a lot is that technology is advancing at a rate faster than our brain is. Yes. And, and, and it's, it's wonderful that we can think up all these things, but can our brain keep up with it? Hey, I want to go back to something, too, that um, I, I like the way you use the term my auto self. And I think that when you become aware of the two different selves, that you can go to your 
prefrontal cortex for, you know, the terms I use over here that I'm, and you can, you can become aware that my auto self is doing something. But the funny thing is, is the auto self starts first, right? So that, that, that it happens at a rate faster that when any kind of automatic negative thought I'm going to have will happen first and then my thinking self will observe it. And so I think that's always a big challenge because the auto self always happens first. Mm-hmm. Then we got to manage it, right? We got to kind of right. go backwards right. and manage it. So I'm. Um, and the auto self doesn't pay any attention to what the thinking self wants to do. Right, right. <laughs> you can say, oh, I noticed that. I don't want to do that anymore. Well, that's right. <laughs> that doesn't change it. Uh, okay, so hey, um, uh, you know Barry, I love this kind of stuff. Maybe we could uh, talk a little bit about just some kind of basic grassroots things we can do to manage that. Is, is there something you want to share that um, maybe something you do with yourself? How how you manage your own auto self? Yeah, well, the first thing is explicitly recognize you have that mode. So, and That's I talk right. about it all the time. I mean, with my wife, I'll I'll do something. She says, "Why'd you do that? Why did you do that?" I say, "Ah." I didn't do what my other self did, you know. I just, things we do automatically and we don't even, our habits, we don't even notice it. So the first thing is start learning to recognize you have these things that don't pay attention to your intentions and they happen all the time. And then and then you start saying, okay, what can I, what can I do about them? Well, our thinking self is knowledge-based and we improve that by acquiring new knowledge. Your listeners are acquiring new new knowledge now, so they're going to get some insights into their automatic mode, but that's not going to change their automatic mode because the automatic mode doesn't respond to new knowledge. Our auto self changes through different mechanisms, and and the primary ones are repetition, and you have to use feelings. You have to counteract. There's feelings that drive it either feelings that keep you from doing things or feelings that cause you to do things you shouldn't do. But, and so when you want to, so when I coach, you know, it's two different kinds of coaching. Well, maybe there's more the, in business. There's two kinds of coaching, advisory coaching and transformational coaching. Now advisory coaches work at the thinking self level, don't they? And, and some people do that like in all realms. Some people do it not very well. Other people are super experts. They understand the domain very, very well, and they provide very good, actionable knowledge for people. And that's that's very good. I work, although since I've been an executive, I can work at the advisory level, but that's not primarily what I do. I work at the transformational level. So I work on changing two types of automatic activities. One is your behaviors. So leadership, you know, leaders' behaviors. And the other one is cultures. And so, you know, that brings us down. There's two different, there's several different types of automatic activities. And it also helps. And when you say, how do you manage it? It helps to get some insights into different types of automatic activities. I don't know if you want to pursue that right now or you want to come back to that. I'll give you a chance to ask me well, some more yeah, questions. There, the, well, okay, so there's a few things that I'd like to unpack there that I'm, you know, you talked about we can acquire new knowledge mm-hmm. and that awareness, right? It it does. Once you're aware of your behavior, now you have an opportunity to do something about it. But at the same time, you got to do some work, right? We've got to work yes. on it. You know, so uh, just a, an example, and 
you know, there's the reticular activating system, right? Our mm-hmm. filter that that can help us focus, wonderful part of us, but at the same time, it can help prove your biases, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm um, just, you know, a certain family member, um, I have an automatic negative thought about a behavior of this family member, but having the awareness, okay, that's the reticular activating system. And and now I'm kind of looking for evidence. And now I'm thinking that this family member is bad, right? Mm-hmm. But if I can do the work, well, can I look when I have that automatic negative thought, can I look for where that person is doing something good? And that's the work I got to do. That's I got to do that from my, my thinking self, right? I got to, I got to do that. And then, but then what I notice is I can train my auto self. And so when I purposely look for evidence that counteracts negative beliefs about this family member, suddenly I start seeing them as a different person because now my reticular activating system is looking for evidence to back up my theory that they are a good person. Yes. Good. Good. So you're, you're doing, you're doing, and and, you know, that's the, you know, there's the behavior part and then there's the, the the part I call auto context, but it's the contextual lenses we use to interpret the world around us. It creates our realities for us. It's how we interpret. So in your, in your particular case, it's an attitude, right? It's it's an auto context, or it's it's that lens you see this particular thing through, and yes. it's an attitude, and you figured out ways to change your attitude. And yes. one of the tricks you're playing on yourself, on your auto self, is say, okay, my thinking self is going to search for positive things, so that I don't just have a totally negative attitude. I can acknowledge some negative aspects, but I don't have to consider this person totally a negative person. And so you are going through a process of reconstructing, in my terminology, your attitude, which is part of that contextual framework you have. That contextual framework shows up, by the way, in our problem-solving worldviews, the basic assumptions we use to solve problems, in our business cultures, the assumptions of what works and doesn't work, in our self, in, in our uh, self-images, in our values, our enduring values we have. And so those that contextual framework, that's probably the that is the biggest thing I'm working on that I work on now. It's not just behaviors. It's, it's the, it, it, you know, a good way to, a good way to articulate it is it's the certainty illusion we all have. We all have certainty illusions. And that's that part of the automatic part of the mind that creates certainties for us. And those certainties are in that automatic part of the mind. And they exist as certainties, as the truth, if you like, as beliefs that are independent of whether they align with the world outside of our mind. Now, That's when I say so they're independent, it means they could align or they may not align, but it doesn't matter. The truth to them is independent of that. It's just inherent in, in that part of the mind. That's right. You know, there's so, it's the lens, right? It's the lens we're looking through. Yes, and, it's and, a lens. And, mm-hmm. You know, one thing, and I think uh, – I don't know. A friend told me the other day, it's, it's well, you, you see it this way because you're older now, right? But, but um, you know, we look through this lens of what is right or wrong. But one thing I found in life is that most things are right and wrong based yes. on mm-hmm. on context, right? And, and that there's very few things that are actually just all bad or just mm-hmm. all good. But we do look through that lens and then then we prove ourselves right. 
And sometimes we miss the bigger picture. So yeah, great stuff. Hey, okay. I want to come back to something, Barry. I'm, I'm a fan of the cognitive behavior model mm-hmm. that circumstances tend to trigger thoughts. And then those thoughts tend to trigger emotions. And if those emotions are strong enough, then they can show up as a behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Obviously affect our results and all of that. Um, you had said that we can train or, or improve our automatic mode with feelings-based feedback. And so I'd like you to go down that road because mm-hmm. a lot of times I'm thinking I improve my auto mode by changing my thoughts and the feelings come after the thoughts. If I have unattended thinking, mm-hmm. then it's typically going to be negative. But if I can kind of force myself to have a new intentional purpose thought, then the feeling I have comes after that. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I, I, uh, in, in my behavior change coaching practice, uh, as I also do culture change, uh, I always induce feelings. And so I start out, I start out by getting a client to, to create what I call their grand goals. And there's what do you want to achieve that you probably couldn't achieve if you weren't in coaching? Something grand, something, and it's got to be specific. It's got to be measurable or verifiable, something out there. And, you know, typically an engagement will last a year. So something, it could be sometime in the next in the next year. And then I have them declare intentions for behavior changes. So typically we'll do a 360, an online 360, and maybe an interview 360 degree survey to find out what the world thinks about their behaviors, their leadership capabilities. So, so we do that. Then they, they declare, explicitly declare behavior intentions. Okay. Now what happens is they say, okay, maybe they're intimidating people. Okay. I'm not going to intimidate people. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to blow up. There's two <laughs> Good <types> luck. Of, <laughs> yeah. There's two types of behaviors. You know, there's people, things you don't do that you need to do. For leaders, right. sometimes they can't, they just can't do performance reviews well. Uh, sometimes people can't work with aggressive people. They don't work on boring topics. If you get higher and higher in the leadership ranks, you get people that are on the other side. They get a lot done, but they create a lot of collateral damage along the way. Right. And, and so they get aggressive, they they intimidate, they micromanage. And so, and so what you do is get them to declare it. And then They'll get, they'll get good results. They'll say, they'll come back and report, yeah, yep, yeah, I started to get angry and I didn't do it. Okay. So then you say, okay, that feels good. But then if you keep focusing on them, they say, well, yeah, I did pretty well since we met last time. I didn't get angry twice when I thought I was going to, but by God, I lost it six times, you know? And so what you do with that, that's, that's just, that's what feel, it feels normal to them. You make, you make it feel bad when they violate their intention. So it's their intentions. It's not what I'm telling them to do. It's what they declare they want to do. And when they don't enact their intentions, you make it feel bad. And when they do, you make it feel good. And it's those feelings. So you can tough it out with a thinking process. Okay, I noticed it and I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm not going to do it this time. And you can succeed once in a while. But the whole idea is to make the new behavior, which is initially uncomfortable, become comfortable. And the old behavior, which, you know, starts out being normal, starts making it uncomfortable. And that's what rewires 
the automatic behaviors or auto behaviors. It rewires them so that now they just normally behave that way. The thinking self doesn't have to get involved. They don't have to say, okay, I'm noticing I'm doing that now. I want to do it differently. It becomes a new, a new person, a new auto self characteristic, if you like. That's right. Uh, okay. So um, I think we do some similar things. So, I, you know, like that cognitive behavior model, I, I, right. I kind of do the same thing where let's just go start with the result of what you want to right. achieve and let's right. work our way backwards. And um, I, I like how you mentioned that, you know, when you have the awareness of the behavior you don't want to do, and then you notice yourself doing it, then there's a negative emotional response. So that's perceived as what the motivational triad avoid pain. Now I'm going to feel bad if I do that behavior. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I definitely love the, uh, the idea of, of creating intentional thoughts that are strong enough to have the potential to be true and strong enough to generate an emotion so we can get that pleasure response and, and it will affect our results. Yeah. Um, hey, so there's something else I wanted to ask you about on, and I saw it on your website about how you offer surveys on how others view you. And, um, you know, feedback can be very valuable, but treating all of it equally can be insanity. Right. And, <laughs> and, and so, you know, one thing I've, I've learned is like the pack, right. That I'm doing the type of work that you do. You are separating yourself from the pack. Mm -hmm. Because what is normal in American society mm -hmm. is to judge people and criticize, right? That, that's mm -hmm. Facebook, uh, all the social media politics. We have a, a, a gazillion examples of judging other people and, and talking about them like dogs, right? <laughs> right. And, and so the type of work that you're doing, and, and myself included, that I think that um, when you separate yourself from the pack you, you start being subject to criticism and and so you know the the reason i'm bringing all this up is those 360 surveys sometimes how do you decipher whether the feedback is valuable or not because sometimes it might just be somebody who all they see is the negative in your leadership skills and they don't see the positive and yeah there can be some truth there but how do you pe help people sort through that feedback to determine what is valuable and what is not. Okay, well, but whole idea of 360 is you get your boss, you get your peers, you get your subordinates, and you often get another group, other group. And maybe you'll have 15 to 20 people more responding. Well, if you see an anomaly, then you ignore it. You know, if you see one or two people are really saying something bad, but the rest don't. So that's the idea. This is a grumpy person, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, and you also look at what are the peers saying? What's the boss saying? What are the subordinates saying? What are other groups? And and uh, and then, of course, the person rates themselves. And, and so what, as you might expect, what normally happens, our self-awareness is terrible, but it, but it, it is in that contextualizing part of our mind. And so it's a belief. It's a belief of who we are. And so when people see the responses are so different from what they believe about themselves, what do you think happens? They get angry. Right. Defensiveness, now, right? Yeah. They get angry at me. And I keep saying, 
these are not my evaluations. I don't know you well enough yet. I'm reporting to you what the people around you are saying. So no need to get, but you know, they the get messenger. mad at me because I'm the one that's sitting there face to face with them and they don't like it. You know, that's so, right. so they get, you know, I don't know if you've ever read back a long time ago, uh, a guy named Leon Fessinger wrote a book on cognitive dissonance. And, and the cognitive dissonance is when you have two different, two different realities out there that, that collide. Well, here you've got an auto-self version, an auto-context version of your self-image. It's, there it is. And then you've got a thinking self-version that's got all these people around you saying something different than what you believe. And so it's hard to ignore that. That's it. You know, if your boss says something, the boss has it out for me. If HR says something, they don't understand. But when you get everybody around you saying something, and if it's just overwhelming, it gets really hard to deny it. So now you've got two different realities, a thinking-based reality that's pretty obvious, it's hard to deny, and your internal self-image. And, and that, that starts the process of people wanting to get in and make changes. It gets, it gets their equilibrium off balance a bit. That's right. Yeah, you know, I totally relate. Um, we have a, a culture assessment survey we do with our clients. And um, mm-hmm. you, you look, you're going to get some negative feedback. Same kind of thing, right? right. And, and, and uh, you know, one thing we always tell our clients is when you get the report, don't do anything for 48 hours. Right? <laughs> don't, don't act, right? Let yourself process yeah, don't, it. Don't do it while you're mad. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay, so Barry, I want to ask you about something else. I'm, you know, when you go down this this path of becoming aware that you actually have two different selves, mm-hmm. then sometimes you start to notice, wait a minute, who is it that has awareness over both of my selves? Mm-hmm. And then um, I think that mm-hmm. our, our world today is, is trying to find ways to communicate that subject, but it's almost like there's a third level that you know, some people use the term consciousness. I can be a conscious of my thinking self. I can be conscious of my auto self. But then what's that? What is that third level there? Yeah. What is that? I don't deal with the third level. I mean, I, I deal with the, the, the conscious level you're talking about is the thinking self. The thinking self can notice I have a thinking self. And but that's, that's, that's where our attention normally is. And I can realize my thinking self can realize I have an auto self and certainly I'm on a crusade to get people to notice that because it's important as a starting point to do something about it and and uh, but most people don't notice that they have an auto self and even if they explicitly recognize they have an auto self and for it's true for all of us most of what our auto self does will escape us yeah. you know you pointed out something in in one of your podcasts that I listened to which is very good uh, you, you, you know, you pointed out that we can only process one story at a time. My, my term, our, our thinking self can only process one story at a time. And knowledge based mode, yes. That's what it does. And, context, and so, yeah. so, all that stuff, most of the stuff that the auto self is doing, it's just doing it automatically for us. That's right. And we don't notice it. And, and so, right. it's, it's, it's hard because to notice it, and, and when you get people to try to notice the behaviors they want to change, it often takes time because you've got to, Stop what you're thinking about, and you point this out very clearly. It's time sharing. It's you stop it, you go think about something else, and you come back. Your thinking self isn't really multitasking, right? It's and so you have to stop what you were doing, go over, notice it, maybe make a change, and then come back quickly. Okay. And so 
It's, so that's why it's so hard to notice. But the autosolve can do all kinds of things in parallel. That's right. I mean, it, it just does lots and lots. But we're, we're, not, we're not going to notice most of it. That's why we have to focus on very specific things that we want, that we want to notice and then try to teach ourselves and we train ourselves. We can train to notice. You are so right. Okay, so Barry, I think that that's what a lot of people get wrong about these concepts is they'll mm-hmm. tend to start with, I want to be less angry of a person. And sometimes that's such a grand goal that it's hard. But if it's, uh, I want to see more of the strengths in my subordinate or, or my peer or my boss, and, and the more specific we can be about a particular behavior. I think people have more success. Yes. Do you find that too? Oh, that yeah, the, absolutely. You you a laser to, focus. You have to take them, you know, very specific things because if we're talking about the things we're doing automatically, we do lots and lots and lots of them and our thinking ability, only able to do one thinking stream, you know, thought process at a time, can't notice lots of things. It's got to focus in because, you know, as you, again, as, you know, attributing, you know, to you, and it's very good that you know, that, understand that, is our thinking self doesn't multiprocess. And so if you're going to stop your conversation you're having either with yourself or with somebody else long enough to go over and notice something, you better not be trying to notice 23 things because you're not going to notice anything. You better, you better zero in on something you want to notice and get back to what you were doing. <laughs> That's right. The filter, right? We got to come back to the filter. Yeah. Right, right. You know, another thing that, um, and I relate to, okay, so I love this because you and I are both um, the type of person that we can see truth and lie in the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. And we have that ability, right? Mm-hmm. We'll challenge belief systems. And so I'm, um, I do see the, the truth there that there's a lot of people that think that coaching is really giving an advice to someone when, um, you know, really what you're doing is encouraging dependency because then they come to you and here's your, your advice, right? And your advice might actually be terrible for them. If it, if it is good advice, then all you really did was encourage dependency. But there is a, a, a belief out there that coaching is giving advice and sometimes, you know, in the form of a question, have you thought about X, Y, Z? Um, but really, real coaching is helping people come up with their own new thoughts, right? Well, Coming up with their own problems. But again, let's distinguish between two different kinds of coaching. Yeah. There's advisory coaching, and, and that's what and, and there's very good advisory coaches. And and what they do and one of the ways to advise is not to just specifically give them information, but use what you're talking about, the Socratic method, right? You ask them questions to guide them towards that. And that's that's the advisory coaching. The, the transformational coaching is different. You're not advising them. They're declaring what they want to do. They're that's declaring right. their grand goals. They're declaring their intentions for behaviors. You're enabling them to do that comfortably for the rest of their lives. And you're transforming their auto self, their auto, in this case, auto behaviors. Same kinds of things happen when you change auto contexts. You know, those lenses we talk about, those certainty illusions, you get it to the point where you see the world differently automatically. That's right. And, and uh, you look, both are useful. I mean, sometimes people, businesses or leaders in a business, they just don't have information that they need. And we do need to give some advice. Yes, yes, yes. But but I've also found that, you know, what you're talking about, the transformation coaching, if you as a pointer in that other direction, that it is the most 
long lasting in life. And the, the word fits. It's the most transformational because then they know how to manage themselves, right? Yes, right. Yeah, so yeah, definitely yeah. valuable. And it's even slightly different than that, Philip. I'll tell you, it's not that they know how to manage themselves. They automatically manage themselves differently after you go through the transformation. They don't think about it. It's not knowledge-based. They aren't saying, okay, I'm going to behave now the way I intend to behave. They transform where they automatically behave consistent with their intentions. So we can't change ourselves or automatic selves or auto selves through our intentions, but we can apply our intentions to go to change, to go through a process. Normally, I mean, self-help does that, right? Self-help is trying to change automatic behaviors. Because changing is so uncomfortable, because changing your automatic behaviors is so uncomfortable, most self-help effort, efforts don't work. That's why a coach can guide you through that discomfort of change, give you, you know, reinforcement, help you block help you block the elements so then it becomes when you become different that part of your auto self you don't even notice anymore it just you're getting the results you want because you're behaving consistently with your intentions but the process doesn't happen through learning about it it happens through typically a year and again you get you get results quickly when you start doing it but they're sporadic and they don't endure the nice thing about a transformation that you go through a longer period is I, I check back to a year, two years, three years later, and the behaviors stuck. They stuck. They're enduring. They, they, you know, things that were just impossible for somebody, they do it normally now. Well, both are true though, right? That I'm um, first, I would have to have, I would learn an awareness, right? Yes. Of, of the concepts we're talking about, but then you got to do the work. And, and so I, I see, I see both in what, what you're saying there, that there have been self-help books that I've read that had a transformational effect on my life, but it, it was a combination of gaining awareness to things and then doing the work, right? Right, right, right. Where, but at the same time, and like you said, I've seen all kinds of people buy some self-help book and read it, and then it just didn't change anything. But they also didn't do the work. Right, right, right. right. Well, because the work is <laughs> uncomfortable and we don't like discomfort, so we quit. A coach doesn't let you quit. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's a good point that I'm, yeah. Barry, I think that when you want to transform yourself, one of the key ingredients is getting good at, at discomfort and yes, almost seeing a pleasure in it. Just like you said, right? The feelings. Can I change the feelings? And discomfort is the sign that you're headed towards greatness, right? If anything is great in this world, it's going to start with some discomfort, yes. right? No, nobody's going to do anything wonderful and it's going to just feel good and easy. All the great stuff is highly uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, I'm recognizing discomfort as a sign that you're going in the right direction. That's definitely a, a good one. Yeah, yeah, sure yeah, yeah, that's right. And learning to tolerate it and learning to work your way through it. And, you know, you made a very interesting point there. Recognizing that discomfort is part of transformational change and then learning to accept that discomfort and get some pleasure out of it, knowing it's, helping you get to where you want to where you want to be in life most people can't do that you seem to have been able to do that sometimes in your life and that's wonderful
Well, it's, um, I think, uh, you know, the, the easiest grassroots example, I think, is public speaking. That um, yes. When you look at a, what is the greatest fear for most people on planet Earth, and it's public speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people experience tremendous discomfort with that. But what I find is some people, and this has worked for me, is it's a buzz. That, yeah. uh, you know, at the end of the day, what one person perceives as, um, uh, uh, you know, that fight, flight, freeze response and fear-based, another person looks at it and it's like they drank a, a whole pot of coffee and now they've got this energy buzz, right? And and can't, what, what is perceived as discomfort for one can actually be turned into pleasure for another, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. All right. So I, I still want you to give me one that you're working on, all right? Give me a window into Barry's world. What's something, what's an auto behavior that you've recently transformed in yourself? Oh, in myself? Yes, in yourself. That's right. <laughs> well, I, I actually, by the way, I actually have a coach, right? So, I mean, coach, coaches, <laughs> yeah, you know, if, if you believe you, that people need coaches to change their behaviors, then you ought to have a, a coach also. And, totally agree. Uh, and so, so question is, what is my coach working on with me so I can change things? Uh, I sometimes have had problems staying engaged when I'm not in a workaday world where I have, you know, in my executive life, you, you had no chance, no choice but to stay engaged. You had meeting after meeting after meeting. People were lining up. You had to make decisions. But when you're writing an article or when you're building a theory or when you do you know do it, it it it's it's harder to stay engaged because it's easy to yes. let the mind wander go do something you know do something right. yeah we always You're try to postpone those things now. <laughs> yeah we we like to get postpone those things that are uncomfortable right so right. i'm working on getting more methodical about doing those things and i i'd say you ask what i've changed i've gotten better i'm not there yet my so what are you doing? Yeah, well, tell me is, more, Barry. What, what are you doing to be more engaged? Oh, uh, getting it getting it formalized. So uh, ha- having a, uh, a task list, uh, attending to this task list first of first thing every day is say, okay, I'm going to stay on my task list. So you get yourself ready for it. Going down it, and then oftentimes my coach has me at the end of the day email her. How did you do on your task list today? Yeah. And, and if I did well, what do you, it's like I always say, you get positive feedback. You didn't do well. Ah, not so good, you know. And so that's I'm in the process of rewiring that part of me. Well, OK, just a curiosity thing on your task list. Wh- where's the most uncomfortable thing? Do you, do you place it as the first thing you do or the last? Yeah, first, or first, 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 good for first, you. Yeah, good for yeah. You. the more I, I get I start very early in the morning. I'm absolutely my best. I'm a morning person. I'm absolutely my best in the morning. I get I get less and less effective as the day goes on. And so yeah. I've got to attack the hard ones. And if you can ask me, what's the hardest thing for me to do that I keep postponing? Writing. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a series of articles now, you know, invited articles for a magazine. And I need discipline to get those done. <laughs> yeah. It is funny that like writing that, uh, that creative part of our brain that we can, uh, once we get in that, in that mode, you can be on a roll though. And, and hours yeah. can fly by. Right. All right. Um, so, you know, here's something else I wanted to talk to you about that. I'm, you know, the two selves theory that, um, 
our automatic mode often is working against our thinking mode, right? Oh, yeah. But um, you also made a statement in one of our communications about how sometimes they complement each other. So could you talk a little bit about that? Is, is it the training it to complement each other? Where was that context coming from? Well, well so sometimes it's just serendipity, right? So, and, and people select careers that align with what they realize, whether directly or indirectly, about what they do automatically. And, and so if, if they enjoy working with people, some people enjoy that and they engage well, uh, they may go into sales. If they don't enjoy working with people, that's their automatic self again, maybe they'll go into uh, accounting. You know? right. uh, and, and so, so they, they align. Now, what are other ways they align? Well, we we uh, align, and that, in fact, that's what we do in behaviors all the time. We align the behaviors with the needs of the job. So, in other words, if you're not doing performance reviews and you're a leader, we've got to make that comfortable for you. And, and by the way, we most of what we don't do that we should do is because we're uncomfortable for some reason. And so it, when you dig down into somebody who's not doing performance reviews, typically what they'll say is, I just, you know, the work is so hard here. He or she works so hard. I just don't want to make him or her feel bad. <laughs> That's right. Fill the it real, up themselves is what I'll say. Sometimes the leader gives it to the other part, the worker, and has yeah. them fill out their own performance review. Yeah, right. I, yeah. <laughs> but the problem is it's the leader who feels uncomfortable about giving the constructive feedback. That's right. And, and so it's their own discomfort and you have to get them to realize, and you know, you do it through a series of, you know, it's the benefit of the person, you know, they're not, they're not working effectively enough. They require need count on your feedback. And if you don't give it to them, you know, then you're not being an effective leader and it's your own. So we have to work on their dis on their discomfort. Once you get that attitude changed, then they start doing them and they start realizing it's a real benefit. So so typically we're working on areas where the auto self and the thinking self, the needs of the job aren't aligned. In culture, it's the same way. The, the way cultures form is through a, a usually usually through a series of repetitive actions that feel good or that have feelings attached. So in business, when you form a culture, you set out a business model. It doesn't work. You modify it. Pretty soon it works. We made money. You know, feels good. Try it right. again. Works again. Yep. Feels good. After a while, that's a thought now. That's a written down policy, a, a business model, a strategy. Okay. Now, it migrates because it feels good and you're getting successes. It migrates to this perceptual lens we're talking about, auto context, if you like, automatic contextual part of your mind. And now, now it's the certainty illusion again. It's a certainty. I don't need to think about it anymore. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just obvious this is the right way. Well, in today's world, the business environment changes very, very rapidly. So what started out where you had a certainty illusion, because that's that internal part of, the, part of the mind, is aligned with your success needs. The environment changes, 
And now it's no longer aligned. But it doesn't matter. You're still certain. Right. And that's why that's why companies fail. So we need techniques to get companies to understand that that belief they have, that certainty they have, may not be correct. In fact, here's yes. something here's something we can take to the bank. It's absolutely totally the case that some of your certainties are certainty delusions. They Dang don't right. they yep. don't align with facts in the world or with your success needs. And in this rapidly changing world, that happens more and more. So mm-hmm. people have to learn. And I, I take people through this process. Pick a belief. Pick some belief you have. Now, assume it might be wrong. Might be right. Might be wrong. Suspend that. And go look at, engage your thinking self and go do research. Go look at what are the facts in the world. And then sometimes they come back. It's ouch. Right. I've had this belief, but none of the facts align with it, you know? Yeah, that's right. They didn't want to look at the facts, but when they go through that, well, you do that with certain individual beliefs, then you start doing it in the company. What what are some beliefs you have here? And if you start going that, you're going to see some of them are no, they may have been viable, probably were at one time. They're not viable anymore. So that's the kind of process you go through to change cultures. You know, okay, so Barry, I I see that. we see examples of that all the time in our work where um, it's usually when a company thinks that they have a really good safety model and there's not a lot of injuries happening is when the major death or catastrophe then occurs. Yeah, right. And everybody thinks they're doing great. And, and most often the, the, the words you hear from the client are, we never saw this coming. We thought we were doing great. And, and you know, so with that, um, you know, and there's a lot behind that statement. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's been a long history of, of of goals to not have accidents, and what they really did is encourage underreporting of injuries, right? And, <laughs> yeah, and so, right, right. And, and so they 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 created a contextual lens, like you said, right. that everything was going smoothly. But um, you know, one thing that uh, in culture work is a lot of times we talk about the concept of drift, and and you could tie this back to the motivational triad that individuals alone are always seeking more efficient ways to get the job done. Right. 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 And then, and which sometimes leads to skipping certain steps and that's perceived as a good idea, but then organizations drift as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Organizations, cultures drift as well. And that, that understanding that you're never going to figure it out. You're never going to figure out the master plan. Even when you have the perfect business model, by nature, you will drift away from doing those things. Mm-hmm. You will drift away as an organization, as a culture. You will drift away as an individual. And so I've noticed some companies, um, they actually try to capture that drift. And and so, you know, just models they use is certain managers have certain required time to go out in the field ask employees, where are we drifting as an organization? Where are you drifting as an individual and normalizing, capturing that drift? But you are so right about that. Yeah. It's a, it's a contextual lens, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. So um, what's a, a, a current belief that you've had that you've challenged recently? What's the contextual lens you've had in your life that you decided, 
to uh, challenge. Here, I'll go for, I'll make it easy for you. Mine is politics. My political affiliation, I've challenged that belief system a lot these, uh, yeah, th- these right. past few well, years. You know. I, I, I've had that a, a few times lately in, in the political world. There, yeah. was a, there were a couple of people in the political world that I thought very highly of. Right. And, and, when, you, and when you, it's the same thing. It starts out with a thought. I think this person is doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Person does well again, feels good. Person does well again, it feels good. So now you don't think the person's doing well. You believe the person's doing well. Automatic. So when you believe the person's doing well, they make a mistake. Well, no big deal. Well, then when you start seeing some big mistakes, some big things, now now you've got to challenge your belief that that person's one of your heroes. And I, I don't want to say who the people were, but but I've had some people that I thought highly of that I've come to the conclusion they're not very good and right. I no longer would vote for that person. I no longer think that's a good person. And and, and so that's a process where you and, and, and we're seeing a lot of examples of that right now where that's not <laughs> happening, <laughs> where people are getting into a lot of mischief and people keep believing they're doing OK. And so that's, it's that it's that belief system that you have. And so you have to learn. And I and I do that with these two people. I I challenge myself to think about, okay, okay, that's one one mistake, maybe it's an anomaly. Another one, hmm, now there's a pattern there, and you gotta force yourself to recognize the pattern and then rewire your belief about who that person is. And that's right. so that's that's happened. I, and I give I can go back if I don't have enough time. I can go back to one of the great aha moments of my life when I was about 21, quite a few years ago, I, I engaged in road rage, okay? What we call road rage now. I don't, and, and so I'd, I'd go down the road and someone would cut me off. I'd get angry. I'd drive aggressively. I'd cut them off. I'll teach that so-and-so. And so I realized that that was stupid, okay? That, that, I was doing just what they're doing. I'm driving aggressively. I'm, I could cause a wreck. I could get a ticket. I could get hurt. I could hurt somebody else. So I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. Okay, so that's my thinking self. Okay, I decided I, I made a clear intention. Next time someone cut me off, what do you suppose I did? Got mad again, right? Yeah, I cut them <laughs> off again. So, so then, told so them then, they were number one, right? Yeah, With so, the middle so finger. That, that was one of my great aha moments of my life because when the, when I calmed down, I sat there and I and I asked myself a question: Who's in charge here? That's right. You know, and and that's when I started realizing early on, the early phases of me, we have two selves. That's There's right. A, there's my intentional self. I'm very clear what I decided I was going to do. Something inside me, which I now would say is an auto behavior, right? My other self caused me to act contrary to my intentions. And and so there was a, and, and then I didn't have the benefit of a coach in those days. I didn't know, I didn't have a two selves theory in those days, but I did go through an interesting process. In other words, I recontextualized the world by telling myself, I'm not responsible for other people's behaviors. I'm responsible for my own behaviors. And I told myself that enough times that little by little, I transformed my attitude towards the situation. And I haven't conducted and participated in done road rage in the many years since I was 21. Uh, so 
Yeah, but that was an aha because I actually explicitly said that to myself. Who is in charge here? I was totally confused. <laughs> I mean, how that's could I right. not enact my intentions? <laughs> you know, Barry, we kind of started that way, and and that's probably kind of how we'll end too. Is that um that uh, that awareness, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, when you are aware that you weren't in charge of what you wanted to do in life, right? right and right. and I think that you know I love the way John Maxwell states it that. Uh, most people change when they hurt enough to change, right? And that sometimes life gives us those experiences mm-hmm. or when they learn enough, right? And so mm-hmm. sometimes we learn enough to wait, and maybe that's awareness that we become aware that we're not doing what we want to do, but there is a path. We can mm-hmm. learn how to get mm-hmm. better at that. All right. So Barry, I love this conversation. I, I wanted just to kind of end with a couple things that on um, services you offer. So one, you've got a survey, and that's to help generate awareness of how the team is is viewing your leadership skills, right? right. right? And how you and how you view your own, <laughs> and how you view your own, and the differences, <laughs> the gaps, right? Uh-huh, right. Um, so another thing you offer, you offer coaching, um, and and you'll help people select grand goals. And I love how you make this statement that are possibly beyond those previously imagined, and and mm-hmm. that ties into all the things we were talking about. Uh, getting good at, at being uncomfortable, but also challenging our own lens of what we think is possible. So you offer that kind of transformational coaching. Um, and then if you would could t- talk a little bit, and you do the coaching for leadership, um, for uh, uh, leaders within an organization or other folks that might also have leadership roles, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then tell me a little bit about the culture change work that you offer. Well, there we can do a culture survey also and do, but there, there you go in. Uh, one of the things I do is I, I have an offsite. And when I have an offsite, I have people, executives inside the company, go find innovations inside the company that are there. And they have to come in and they have to champion them. They have to say, this is going to work. This and then they have to and and they get they get rated on how well they do so they can't fake it they've got to come in and do it and then and then the executives get rated on whether they did a good job of defending something because what happens inside is there's in all organizations of any size there's always innovations there's always people that know what to do there's always people I've got but they don't have the they they don't they can't change the culture the right. culture just has its own momentum so what you do is you get the executives to champion it so it's at the high level they have to understand it they have and then you vote on the best ones and then some executive gets it and they've got to, they get rated their bonus <laughs> their career is based on making it happen so you got someone at the level that can do it and they find out how hard changing cultures is another thing you do is you have everybody come in at the senior level with some belief that the organization has and then everybody has to look for anomalies anomalies being non-fitting data you know there's 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 things that say that's not right or or you look you look for confirmations but you you have to challenge it you have to challenge you know one one of the things i try to get people to use as an operating principle you know is believe but verify okay so in other words you got a lot of beliefs and so you're not going to say those beliefs are bad but go verify them you know that's sort of a a takeoff on what Reagan said a long time ago, you know, trust but verify. Right. So, so, so you, and, and when you go to verify it, if you can really say, okay, I'm going to really, I'm going to go prove I'm right, or I'm going to. We need soft and hard factors. Yeah. And don't also, we? you find out, my gosh, there's all, 
when you start going through that process, you start finding out, my gosh, that belief is wrong. Now let's go about reconstructing it. So that's the culture side. And uh, you can save companies that way. Companies go, go, go right, you know, whole companies die because of that. Yeah, well, no, you're so right. And, you know, where we see it as fatalities, of course, in our industry. Right, um, right, right. You know, there's the hard success factors, like how many injuries were reported, right? Um, But then uh, there's the soft factors, too. And and a lot of times what we find in the culture assessment work is the soft factors aren't matching the hard factors, right? And and so, yeah, I got to look at all of it. All right, so I'm... Everyone can find you at twoselfs.com. And so that's the number two and then spelled out selfs, S-E-L-F-S.com. Yes, and Barry has a, a uh, we'll put that link in, in the show notes as well if you want to uh, go over to Barry's yeah. website. But he also has a lot of articles that you can uh, read on, on his website. And if you're interested in his services, you can find him there. Any final thoughts that you'd like to leave everyone with? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd like to leave us here with uh, thanking you. Uh, I've, I've been in touch with several different podcasts of, of people who do those, and so many of them, unfortunately, looking for sound bites. They aren't trying to, I don't think they even realize it, they aren't really trying to solve fundamental problems. They're trying to get people to listen to it, maybe sell something, and, and they primarily focus on motivation rather than problem solving. Uh, I look through a lot of your material, and I'm Convinced you know how to solve problems. Different domain than some of what I do, but you know how to solve problems. And I I really appreciate it that you see value in what I'm doing. And, you know, we have a lot of overlap in that we both see these two modes. And so uh, I, I appreciate and thank you for this uh, this interview today because I think you know how to get at real solving real problems. And uh, I salute you for that. Barry, that uh, thank you too. Um, thanks for being one of those guys in the world that I'm, I, I, that is. Uh, what we, how we relate, right? That you and I, I think, regardless of the fact that we may make a living doing some of these things, I think that you and I both have a passion for helping people transform their life experience and live yes. a better life. So, yeah, I salute you as well, Barry. Thank you. Well, thank so you much. so much. <laughs> All right, you have a great, wonderful day. Okay, you too. Bye. If you learned something valuable today, please share it with others. For more information head over to leaderthink.com.